Let's begin, we're starting. Okay, the topic for tonight is Chaim Mordechai Rumkowski. Yes. For next week, oh, show of hands, who's going to be able to attend the class next week during Hanukkah? We'll have class. All right, good. So the topic for tonight is Rumkowski. Chaim Mordechai Rumkowski, who was born on February 27th, 1877 in Russia and makes his way to Poland uh, and spends a career running an orphanage in Lodz. He's an insignificant figure as far as we're concerned until we get to the period of the war. Uh, Rumkowski, just a little personal background about him, was a childless widower at that point. And when the war starts, he's 62 years old. World War II. Okay, the big one. Now, as a, child, as a, as a childless widower, he, he loved children, but he may have loved them a little too much. And he was accused be, of molesting children and young women, both in his tenure as a leader, as a, as a head of an orphanage, and in his capacity as the chairman of the Judenrat in the Lodge Ghetto, where he had the power, effectively, of life and death over thousands and thousands of people, and could use his political power to extract uh, favors of the physical kind. Uh, Lucille Eichengreen, who survived the, the war and I think is alive to this day, I think is 91 years old, she wrote a book, Rumkowski and the Children of Ludge, about 15 years ago that came out, in which she accuses him in graphic detail of uh, nefarious deeds. Now, uh, Rumkowski, even in the pre-war era, was known for positive characteristics and negative ones. On the negative side of things, he was, he was aggressive, he was domineering, he was thirsty for honor and power, he was raucous, vulgar, ignorant, impatient, intolerant, impulsive, and lustful. Okay. Those are the seven major sins. All right? What's left? Not much. On the, but on the positive side, on the positive side of things, on the positive side, and this is one of the reasons why he was effective in a totally immoral way, but effective as a ghetto leader, uh, he possessed exceptional organizing prowess, he was energetic and quick, and he was true to the tasks that, w- that he decided to undertake. So if he wanted to fulfill a, a responsibility, he would get the job done, even if what that job entailed was the deportation of people and very immoral things. If we have to offer some sort of periodization of the Lodge Ghetto, there are four eras we have to deal with. The first is from the occupation of Poland by the German forces until ghettoization. So basically from September of 1939 until about May of 1940. Then the second period is from ghettoization till the decision about the final solution. That this period is basically from May of 1940 until January of 1942. And it's a time of uncertainty because it's far from clear that even the Nazis know what they want to do with the Jews of that region of Poland or what the fate of that region of Poland should be altogether, politically. The third era is the disastrous year of deportations, 1942. And the fourth era is the remainder of the war, or actually from October of 1942 through the end of the ghetto in July of 1944. Now, what exactly happened in Lodz? In September of 39, the war begins. And Lodz is in western Poland and a section of Poland that ultimately will be incorporated into the Reich, annexed as what will become effectively German territory, 
uh, as opposed to other parts of Poland which will have different political designations. And it was occupied, Lodz was occupied in the middle of September. By October 13th, Rumkowski was appointed as the head of the Judenrat. What was his story? Well, he became effectively king of the Jews, the elder, the elder of the ghetto. And he reported directly to Hans Bibo, who was the Nazi administrator of Lodz. Hans Bibo was a corrupt uh, bureaucrat who only wanted to be bribed, and Rumkowski was all the, uh, the happier to, to bribe him and secure uh, favors for his own immediate you know, uh, uh, constituency, his fellow members of the Judenrat, and uh, favorite, uh, favorite individuals. Uh, well, he didn't have much of a family. His wife had passed away, he never had children, but he had people who were close to him in his inner circle. And so by bribing Hans Bibo, he was able to do well for himself even while hurting all sorts of others. Uh, Hans Bibo eventually would be uh, captured after the war. He, he escaped capture in May of 1945 and was in hiding, but sort of hiding in plain sight. And he was recognized by a survivor of the ghetto and ratted out to the Americans who held him in custody until uh, early 1947 when he was extradited to Poland and the Polish uh, executed him after a, a trial on, Ju on June 23, 1947. So Hans Bibo, who was the, uh, the commandant of the large ghetto, only lived to be 45 years old and it was over for him. Um, now, what was Rumkowski's position in the community that he would be made the head of the Judenrat? He had been a member of the Kihila board before the war started. Not the senior most member, but he was a man of significance in the Kihila. In September of 1939, many Jews in western Poland did what? In what direction? East. Okay. So they flee to eastern Poland, to the portions of the country that are occupied by Soviet forces. And the further east you go, the more likely you are to be safe from... Uh, the Holocaust, although you might run into problems with, with, with the Soviet Union and be sent to the gulags. But it was better to go east. And so thousands and thousands of Jews of Western Poland did that, including Jews from, from Lodz who ended up never living in the ghetto because they were gone before, ghetto, before ghettoization. Some of the leaders of the Kihila ran away at that time, leaving uh, Rumkowski to be sort of the number two man uh, in remaining in the city from a Jewish perspective. Number one fellow disappeared, and on October 13th, Rumkowski is now the head of the Judenrat. What happens next has been a source of great historical controversy. Um, in, in November of 1939, 30 members of the Judenrat were suddenly arrested, 24 of them never to return. What was speculated was that Rumkowski had... Uh, colluded with Hans Bibo and the Nazis to have this uh, iteration of the Judenrat eliminated because they wouldn't rubber stamp Rumkowski's policies. That he ratted on them knowing that he would get them killed just because they were not as cooperative as he wanted them to be. He wanted autocratic rule and they wouldn't uh, tolerate it so goodbye with them. That's the theory that was widely accepted even by many historians for a long time. Uh, Michal Unger, a more recent historian, has proven that that's not really what happened. What actually happened was that in November of 1939, the intelligentsia of all the non-German ethnic groups in that portion of Poland were quickly eliminated. 
because that portion of Poland, uh, which became known as the Reichsgauwarterland, was going to be annexed. That where a central Poland became the general government, the region where Auschwitz is located, um, and was not annexed to the German Reich, it was like a, a special separate entity of undesirable peoples, mostly Jews and ethnic Poles, who would be treated with great severity, but could live there because that's their territory, except the Jews would eventually be exterminated. Uh, in, in this section of Poland, it had to be thoroughly Germanized, that all non-German ethnic groups would be somehow done away with. Yet, the problem was that without a policy of extermination, which didn't exist yet, or wasn't known to exist yet, what do you do with all these people who are non-Germans? So the solution will eventually be to ghettoize them. But even that's not a full solution because they're still there. They're in a ghetto, in a cramped quarters, but you don't want them at all. So this is an ongoing problem that the Nazi administration is going to have to deal with, sort of a conflict between their ideology and their political aims and the living reality on the ground. Okay, but in any event, the intelligentsia of the non-German ethnics were eliminated so as to prevent any opposition to this political diplomatic agenda. Okay. But, if that's really what happened, and it wasn't Rumkowski telling on his colleagues in the, uh, uh, of the, of the Judenrat and getting them killed, why did people think that's what happened? And the answer is that Rumkowski was such a tyrant. It was easy to believe, not just historians writing in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, but even in the moment, it was easy to believe that Rumkowski had gotten them all killed. And because people believed that, whether it was true or false, and it turns out it seems to have been false, no one else was willing to step up from the communal leadership, from the, the upper echelon of the Kihila Lodge, to take a position on the Judenrat, which meant that lesser tier figures would eventually occupy those positions, who would in fact rubber stamp all of Rumkowski's policies. So whether or not he got these people killed or not, in effect it served the same purpose. Nobody of any uh, political significance among Jews was willing to stand up to him. He had absolute rule with uh, colleagues to rubber stamp his policies. Okay. Now, how many Jews are we talking about here? Well, the city of Lodz had 672,000 people before the war started, of which about 230,000 were Jews and about 70,000 were ethnic Germans. The existence of an ethnic German community in Lodz plays an important role, as we'll see as, as the story progresses, in preventing an uprising and in making life more miserable than it needed to be in the ghetto. Yeah. Uh, people of the German folk who live beyond the, the, the borders of the, the, the state of Germany. So, yeah. Yeah. Right. Because, because as, well, aside from the trust factor, it was also an issue of Poland being untermentioned, being less than the peoples of Central and Western Europe. Therefore, they're, they're not worthy of having a functional state, whereas the Central and Western Europeans are you know, good Europeans who might be under occupation, but they're worthy of, some, of having a bone thrown their way. Now, It's it's very it's very it's very easy for uh, a society that thinks very highly of itself to look down upon and really look down upon 
those uh, nations whose culture is, are not as vibrant or as intellectually impressive and to say, yeah, because they're like subhuman of some kind. Right. Now, well, they, were, they were under subjugation a lot of times from Sweden and from other countries. Well, there also was no Poland for a good 140 years. Uh, it's very easy to, to, to dismiss them as being insignificant because the Polish state was gobbled up in 1772, 1793, and 1795 and didn't exist in any real form from 1795 to 1919 other than the Kingdom of Poland, which was uh, not really an independent state in the 19th century. Okay, so... The United States had that idea. What's that? At first, people were admitted to the United States. The quotas were more severe against Southern Europeans and the people from... That's right. Places that were seen as more desirable had bigger quotas. All right. Now, on Bloody Thursday, which was March 1st, 1940, there was an action against Jews in, in Ludge. And the purpose of this, aside from just uh, Nazis you know, enjoying taking shots at, at random people and killing, the goal was to scare the Jews into coalescing or collapsing onto one part of the, uh, of the city. Jews live all over the city. But if they feel as though they're unprotected, they're unsafe, just walking the streets and not banding together as an ethnic unit, well, then they're going to they're gonna fall back onto you know, Jewish solidarity in one spot. And that one spot will eventually be a ghetto once walls are put up and fences and barbed wire. So the goal is scare people into moving into one section of the city. By May 1st, the ghetto was sealed. So physical barriers were placed around uh, the section that was supposed to contain the Jews, and this was an unbelievably small section of the city. Insufficient, 1940, insufficient for the realistic needs of the population. Now, how much, how much space are we talking about, and how many people are we talking about? It was 1.5 square miles, but of which only 0.93 square miles were actually habitable. The rest were not built up. So less than a square mile of housing, uh, housing stock and livable, uh, livable quarters for how many people? So I said there were 230,000 Jews in Ludge before the war started, but about a quarter of them ran away, mostly to points east, which means there are about 164,000 Jews of Ludge who have to get, become ghettoized. And to that number was added another 20,000 Jews who live in neighboring towns and villages in that region of occupied Poland, and then eventually another roughly 20,000 Jews from Central and Western Europe who were deported not necessarily to a concentration camp or to a, to a death camp, but were de- deported to the Ludge Ghetto for whatever reason. So at its high point, there were close to 200,000 people. Yeah. Were there other ghettos of this size at that time? The largest was the Warsaw Ghetto. This is the second largest. <coughs> Um, there are other ghettos that are fairly large, like the Vilna ghetto eventually was pretty large, uh, but most are not this big. And are they all being governed along the same The ghettoization is happening in ni- late 1939, 1940. Ghettos are being um, depleted of their population, with people being sent whether to, to labor camps or to death camps, starting in early 1942, and then most ghettos don't exist by the summer of 43, when Operation Reinhardt is winding down. The Ludge Ghetto was the last ghetto to be liquidated, 
by a lot. It's not liquidated until about a year after everybody else. Why? That's the topic for tonight. That's what Mikowski's doing, which makes him either a hero or a villain, depending upon who you ask. Okay, but mostly a villain. So, um, what happens in the ghetto? So, as I said, the Nazis didn't have a good idea about what they wanted from this part of Poland uh, in terms of its undesirable population. Sure, it would be better if they didn't exist, but they do exist. What are you going to do? So before the final solution, and after people are crowded into a ghetto, the idea of Rumkowski is make people useful. That the, the slogan of Arbeit, Arbeit macht frei, which is uh, at the entrance to several of the, the, the concentration camps, and at Auschwitz-Birkenau, um, he really believed that. He believed that if you were productive and there was a disincentive for the Nazis to kill you, then you'd live longer. Maybe you wouldn't survive the war after all, no, but nobody knows how this war is going to end. It's, uh, that's five years into the future. But at least if there's a disincentive to kill you, then you might live a little while longer. Okay, but already within that concept is the makings of deportation of people who are what? Unable to work. So it's making a chiluk, a distinction between types of Jews along age lines and that of physical ability, which will make 1942 a horrible year for those who are not able-bodied people between the ages of, you know, 16 and 50. Um, What happens? 117 factories are created within the ghetto. And they produce uh, uniforms, garments, electrical equipment, uh, paper, wood, metalworks. Uh, a lot is going on. And Rimkowski was very proud of himself, saying that within a few more years, the ghetto will be humming like a, like a well, fine oiled factory. Uh, he was really proud of himself. He said there's no room for people where they put factories. That's a good question. It, 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 it further uh, co- congests the limited space that they have. Life was not too pleasant in, the, in, in that one square mile. Okay, now, this idea of um, making yourself useful, there's some logic to it, but you could event- eventually take it too far. And I'm reminded of the 1957 movie, which won the Oscar for Best Picture, which is... Bridge Over the River Kwai. What happens? The, the, the British officer becomes essentially a, a, a patsy, a lackey, a collaborator to the, the Japanese, not because he loves the Japanese, but because of the ethic of we'll work hard, we'll, make our, we'll prove our worth, we'll prove that we're, we're significant, and we'll make this wonderful bridge. Except what's happening? The Japanese are using it for the war effort, and it's bad for the British. So in the end, they blow it up, and everyone gets killed. Uh, Rumkowski is the same thing. He takes his agenda of working for the Nazis, which initially is to save Jewish lives, to save his own skin, but gets so wholly invested in it that he loses perspective. And it becomes entirely about his successes as a a, a factory boss, as a ghetto boss, producing, producing, producing. His mind, if it wasn't warped before, it becomes warped by the, uh, the course of the war. Okay, now what, what's going on in life in the ghetto? So, Rimkowski was, a, was an autocrat, 
and he wanted to make sure he was on top of the situation, and there was no black market, there was no uh, subterranean economy or society below society that couldn't be managed or governed. How do you do that? Well, in most ghettos, such life existed. I mean, certainly in the Warsaw Ghetto, there was plenty of smuggling in and out, inside and outside of the ghetto walls, and uh, that kind of smuggling involved foodstuffs to increase people's diet, to increase caloric intake, and also to import weapons. So that didn't happen in Lodz for a few reasons. One, currency. The currency of the Lodz ghetto was an ersatz currency. It wasn't the German uh, currency and it wasn't the, the old Polish currency. It was a fake ghetto currency and you could only buy lawful items with that currency. It became known as the Rumkin after Rumkowski because the people would mock him and his picture was on the money. Uh, he was full of himself. And, I mean, he was so full of himself, I'll read to you something that appeared in the Ghetto Chronicle, uh, the, kind of, the kind of poetry that could only exist in a, an environment where the boss is so out of touch and full of himself that he's like a god. So the Ghetto Chronicle in September of 41 said the following, Our President, Mr. Rumkowski, is blessed by the Lord Almighty, not only with wisdom and charm, but with a strong and powerful arm. At number 20 Dworska Street, people are working with great speed, and all the lazy elements feel the power of the President. The unruly persons once and for all have been put against a wall. In the ghetto now reigns order and calm, thanks to the President's mighty arm. So... That was it was commissioned by him uh, to be written by someone with a little poetic uh, ability to glorify him. Uh, it's, it's disgraceful, but that's what was going on. So the underground economy did not exist because of the, the issue of the currency, also because of very strict ghetto policing, that the, in, the internal Jewish ghetto police were tough and vicious and acting on Rumkowski's orders, and if they ever needed uh, to have recourse to the German police who were on the outside, they could do so. Um, and on one occasion, a strike was busted up using German police, and, and the strikers were killed. The other factor was the, the ethnic German population. In Warsaw, so who lived in Warsaw? Jews and Polish Gentiles. So Polish Gentiles uh, may have a, a love or hate relationship with the Jews, but still there are plenty of them who are interested in, for, whether for profit or out of the goodness of their own heart, cooperating with uh, militia forces, underground forces in the ghetto. Large, effectively under Nazi rule, became a German-dominated city, even though the Germans had only been about 10% of the population before the war began. And those Folkdeutsche have no interest in uh, running guns for a Jewish partisan operation. So all the factors are working against the kind of uprising that happened in Warsaw or Bialystok. Okay? It's not going to happen here. And as a result of this lack of underground economy, people are going to die of starvation. Because all supplies have to be brought in from the outside above board with Nazi consent. And the, uh, you know, 900 calories a day isn't going to cut it for a, a, a growing person or for an adult. And over the span of the, the, uh, of the ghetto's existence, 43,000 people died in the ghetto of 
uh, disease or starvation, including 18,000 in the disastrous 1942 alone. So that's a lot of people uh, just to, to die in the ghetto, put, putting aside any matter of deportations or, or shootings. Okay. After what was the dissolution of helping the Germans um, with all the people dying, not getting enough food? Uh-huh. It would catch up to him eventually. Yes, so his, his demise, which we're not exactly sure about how that happens, I'll get to it in about 20 minutes, um, it was brutal. Okay, so what happens now? The, the ghetto is a place of Jewish life. Life continues, 1940, 41, even into 42, before the deportations begin. Uh, it's a tremendous uh, place, this ghetto. It is far and away more advanced than any other ghetto in terms of education, hospitalization. I mean, the Jews put together, under Rumkowski, as bad as he was, significant cultural, educational, and medical institutions. What kind of uh, resistance was there if no uh, armed resistance? Well, there's elements of cultural resistance. Maintaining synagogues, maintaining yeshivot, maintaining religious life. In the economic sphere, resistance uh, manifested itself in work slowdowns. In other words, the Germans want these, uh, these metal works, uh, and I'm supposed to produce 10 a day, I'll produce 7 a day. Wh- however many I can get away with, it, I won't get killed, I'll produce that, not a single one more. So work slowdowns are a means of resistance. Okay, but in the beginning of 1942, it's clear that the unproductive elements of the population are marked for some unpleasant future. Since uh, with the final solution about to be implemented, only those who were economically viable were going to be kept alive. Where do the Jews of the large ghetto get sent? They get sent to the Chelmno. Chelmno was 31 miles north of Lodz. And Chelmno was not part of Operation Reinhard, which, was where most, which involved most of the death camps um, and most of the, kill- the industrial killing. Chelmno was its own entity for the purposes of the Jews of that region of western Poland. And the method of killing was gas vans. Now, the gas vans began operating in Chelmno on December 8, 1941, in a very horrific scheme whereby about 70 people at a time are loaded into a van and they end up asphyxiating on the exhaust and the truck drives about five miles into the forest and eliminates all the evidence and then drives back and back and forth and back and forth it's actually a a much slower method than was developed for, for Birkenau and for the other death camps where there were fixed institutions but this is what existed at Chelmno and it was the first of all of them so in 1942 in January you have the first deportation, 10,000 people. February to April, the next wave of deportations, 34,000 people. May of 1942, 10,000 people. Then September of 1942, 15,500 people. So those waves of deportation, all told, were about 72,000 Jews. And who were these people? So the first wave were the criminal element the, and the lazy people, the, 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 the slothful ones. Rumkowski's idea was to not alienate the bulk of the ghetto population and how do you do that? 
by saying that the ones who are going to be taken are selected intentionally because of some objection about them. That th- these are people who we don't like anyway. Now, there's only so many undesirables within the Jewish population before you start getting into you know, your everyday people who are part of families and they're going to be upset. You, you can't just continue to deport people and think it's all going to work out just fine. The next wave of people were invalids, uh, old, the elderly, people who were upstanding figures in the community but who just couldn't work anymore. And what's happening to these people? So they're, all, they're going off to Chamno to die. Do, the, do those who remain behind in the, in the ghetto know that? Or do they just think that these people are being sent somewhere for a resettlement in the East, which was the usual euphemism? So it's impossible to know when word got back that deportation meant Chamno and death. But the historians think that by September of 42, it was a clear as day to everyone in the ghetto that deportation meant immediate death and nothing else. Um, which is why in the September deportation round, you had a real problem. Now, uh, Hans Bibo and, the, and the, the Nazis want the deportation of children. So what is Rumkowski going to do? He makes a famous speech on September 4th, 1942 of Give Me Your Children, in which he actively encourages the parents in the ghetto to send off their children to die. And he is a long speech. You can read it. It's available on all the Holocaust um, um, uh, scholarly websites. And the U.S. Holocaust Memorial website has the whole text in English. Um, it, it's, it's a horrific speech which was interrupted periodically by hecklers from the crowd who objected and wanted to stone him. Um, and he admits that it's a, it's a disastrous blow for, the, for our people. But what can we do? If we want to save some, we have to give up our most, our most precious, those of our children. He tries to justify his behavior by saying that they originally wanted even more. They wanted 25,000, and he was able to knock it down to 20,000. So he always plays the role of a tzaddik. Uh, even while doing the biggest riches, that's uh, his. He, he 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 never will admit that he's doing wrong. He's always doing something right to spare others, while killing those directly involved. Okay, um, that deportation goes forward with about fifteen and a half thousand uh, people, mostly children. At that point, the deportations come to a halt. Between October of 1942. And June of 1944, there are no deportations. Why? The answer is that those that remained were productive people. There were 89,000 Jews remaining in the ghetto in late 1942. There were 80,000 remaining in the ghetto in early 1944. About 9,000 died of disease, but nobody was deported, and the factories were humming along. Before we get back to the issue of the factories, let's just compare for the moment the behavior of Rumkowski and for that, let's say, for that of uh, Adam Chernikow, who was the head of the Judenrat in Warsaw. So in Warsaw, when the leadership was presented with a demand for deportations as part of the final solution in early 1942, what does Chernikow do? He commits suicide. He, he, he swallows a cyanide tablet because they threatened if you don't cooperate by tomorrow, we're going to kill your wife. 
So what is he going to do? He doesn't want to commit genocide. He doesn't want his wife to die. He commits suicide. The wife ended up surviving the war. Um, so we see certain people don't have uh, the, the courage to give up their own life for the sake of some greater good, and others do have that courage. Um, can I, can I just yeah. Uh-huh. I'm not defending it. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't much. She'll tell you what a hell it was. Yeah. But the thought process was they can't kill us all. Right. Someone has to survive. The war will end. Yeah. The question is how many of us will be there? Right. So th- that's that's the message Rumkowski had for his audience every single time he got up to address a, a crowd. And halakhically, and there, and there were plenty of big rabbis in all the ghettos, including in Ludge. Uh, what was their take on cooperating with deportations? So, based upon the halacha uh, that appears in the, in the Rambam, you're not allowed to uh, cooperate with the, well, ca- capitulate in giving over to death even one innocent Jew. You're only allowed to give over someone who's worthy of execution, like Sheva ben Bichri, who was the renegade in the days of David Amelech and who was handed over by the, by the city uh, for execution. But otherwise, you can't do this. So, distastefully, uh, distasteful to moral level and the halakhic level, uh, Chernikow was right, not necessarily to commit suicide, but not to cooperate, and Rumkowski is arguably wrong. Okay, which leads us to, to the next issue. Uh, I was going to save this for the end, but you, we bring up the rabbis and the halacha. What was the fate of Judaism in the ghetto? So, Alan, I thank you, because I looked up in Farbstein's book, this about a whole chapter on the issue of, of, of Siddur Kiddushin and Gittin. So, um, the, the rabbinate of the, of the Lodge ghetto was abolished in 1942, despite the fact that there were prominent rabbanim who were on the premises. And it was a power play by Rumkowski to grab, to consolidate further control over all life in the ghetto, since for religious Jews, religion is a big part of life. So if now there are no more rabbis, and he's the rabbi, by virtue of being the elder of the community, so all the more power to him. What, what areas of, of, of life are in the hands of the rabbis that are now in the hands of Rumkowski? Marriage and divorce. Let's put aside divorce for the moment although there was plenty of it because of concerns of Aguna if people survived. You know, there were conditional divorces issued all throughout the the war years lest a a woman be stranded in a situation where she doesn't know if the husband is alive or dead. But let's get to the issue of weddings. There were plenty of weddings that happened in the ghetto. Hundreds of them. And Rumkowski was the Masada Kiddushin. So here, this big Russia is the Masada Kiddushin, and he, he tinkers with the ceremony a little bit. He, he forbids, under severe penalty, real rabbis from solemnizing marriages and writing out a ketubah. All the ketubah will be the Rumkowski ketubah, and the ceremonies will be under his auspices, with the, uh, him overseeing the giving of the ring and making the bracha over, uh, uh, of, the, of the Kiddushin, the Bar Priyagafen, and the witnesses... Uh, and the and the and the chuppah, but it would be like a mass chuppah, like uh, Reverend Sinyan Moon, because uh, it, many people would get married simultaneously. Even in the summer of '44, just before the liquidation, there was one day where there were 19 chuppahs simultaneously, supervised by Rumkowski. So, and and by the way, for the sheva brachas, 
under the chuppah, he had seven different cups. There would be one coast, and he'd divide the, the wine into seven different cups. And then he'd give ration cards for you to have your, your meal. Um, and he'd give you more calories on the day of your wedding than he would on any other day. So after the war, an interesting question came up. So first of all, what was the halachic status of those, of those weddings? For, from two perspectives. One, did religious Jews in the ghetto actually respect the, the ceremonies conducted by Rumkowski such that they would then function as married uh, husband and wife? They had choice. Well, they so, no, so they all wanted to get married. These are, nobody's coercing marriage. These people, couples are, are coming for they want to get married. But what I'm saying is, would they live as husband and wife based upon Rumkowski's ceremony, or would they seek out in secrecy a real rabbi to solemnize the marriage and write a real ketubah? So after the war, in the rubble of the ghetto, they found ketubot that were handwritten, not no printed uh, by, the, by the publishing house, but handwritten by the real rabbanim to override whatever Rumkowski might have done, and presumably they had chuppah in private uh, when nobody was watching, so the ghetto police wouldn't arrest them. So people did that. But after the war, let's say you didn't do that, and you survived, was the Rumkowski uh, chuppah considered valid? So Reb Tzvi Meisels was asked this question, and he consulted with Riecheskel Abramsky for the Dayan in the London Basin at that time, before he moved to Israel. And the, con- the conclusion was that ex post facto, those marriages were valid, assuming there was a giving of a ring in the presence of two Jewish witnesses, and the couple was of uh, marriageable quality, meaning there was no halachic impediment for those two people to get together. So assuming all those factors obtain, then, yeah, Rumkowski's ceremony is no different than one done by any Chaim Yankel, because you don't need a rabbi to do a wedding. Uh, don't tell anybody that. But, yeah. <laughs> so, but, 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 the, but the, con- the conclusion was that even though it's bediavad uh, valid, the couple should go ahead and uh, have another chuppah with with sheva brachas and, and and giving of a of a item of value to reenact the kiddushin just to play it safe. Uh, since it doesn't hurt, do it again. But if even if you didn't do it, the marriage was binding. And if you would want to get divorced, you'd need to get. Kosher, yeah, 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 absolutely. Okay, so a rumor was circulated in 1942, right after the the major deportations, that Rumkowski was going to try to flee the Ludge Ghetto. He's going to run away. And I'm not sure if people were excited by that prospect or they were saddened by that, but Rumkowski got up and denied it. Uh, you know, he vigorously denied not running away. And he said, you know what? The other leadership in 1939, the original Kehillah leadership, they did run away. But I stayed. And just like I stayed then, I'm going to stay now. And for 39 years, I've been loyal to this community. That's what he said. Like, it was righteous indignation. that I had, And I never ran away, and I never will. Okay. At that point, he's about 65. Okay. So... The issue of the economic productivity of the Ludge Ghetto. Rumkowski was, was proud of his factories and said they were, they were doing quite well. In fact, they were underperforming. Um, and they were very disappointing from an economic point of view. In 1943-44, there was a program 
initiated by the German government called Ost Industry, East Industries, which relied upon coerced labor from Jews and Poles to build up uh, the German industrial base to produce you know, necessary wartime goods. And since you didn't have to pay the employees, you just had to barely keep them alive with rations, it's uh, an economically good idea, as immoral as it is. So the large ghetto fell into this, this category of Ost industry, East industries. And Dr. Max Horn of the SS was responsible for this project. He visited the large ghetto in the summer of 1943, and he issued a damning report that said it was inefficient and, and very unprofitable. How, why? A few reasons. Number one, too many children. That even though the, the children had been deported in significant number in September of 42, those were the, like the really young children. But there were others who were still you know, fairly young and not uh, able-bodied to do significant work who were living in the, in the ghetto. Too many young children. Number, number two, the shops were too far apart. It's a square mile. Now, a square mile is a small space for 200,000 people or 100,000 people. But as a shop or as a factory, a square mile is huge. I mean, factories are a city block, typically, not a square mile. So going back and forth from one place to another for the transfer of parts, it's inefficient. And lastly, he said they were making the wrong products. They're making unnecessary civilian items as opposed to badly needed military-grade equipment. So, for all these reasons, this place isn't worth keeping around. Now, the solution was to shut it down and turn uh, either into a concentration camp or move things to Lublin. That, uh, that Lublin was going to be a center, uh, was a center of industrial production for the Germans and just move the population there. Himmler supported this idea but for whatever reason, it was never implemented. The Ludge Ghetto remained the Ludge Ghetto and was not shifted geographically or altered in any uh, considerable way in terms of its uh, commercial significance. So the one effect of, of Max Horn's report was it, it showed the need to further diminish or uh, uh, deplete the population of the ghetto, which means more deportations and more death. Horn later after the war felt a, a, a degree of remorse that he didn't take into consideration the lives of the people involved, that he was so overly obsessed with productivity, uh, he lost track of the human element. Now, he was not executed as a war criminal. He lived till significantly later. Uh, and like Albert Speer and some of the others, Nazis who were not executed and who lived somewhat long lives after the war, they would make these remarks about how we should have realized the human, you know, the human, the human factor, but just didn't. Our, our minds were, were elsewhere. Our minds were wandering. Okay. Um, now, Ust Industry met its demise by early 1944 because of a few factors. Number one, ghetto uprisings. Now, that didn't happen at large, but it happened in other places. And when there's an uprising, so economic uh, activity grinds to a halt, and the ghettos get destroyed. Also, the war wasn't going well for Germany on the Eastern Front, and as the Eastern Front moves further and further towards Germany, towards uh, the interior of Poland, you can't 
maintain these, this base of operations as they were. You have to move people and, and move, uh, move prisoners and shut down death camps because from the Nazi point of view, you, you have to just collapse backward. So the Ost industry workers, in significant measure who were Jews, almost all got killed since they were no longer useful in the, the way that the Germans had hoped for. Okay. In 1944, the deportations uh, start again. In June, there's a deportation of 7,000 people to Chelmno. What's weird about this is that Chelmno was shut down in the middle of 1943 and was in part destroyed. Uh, the main building at the Chelmno death facility was razed. It was knocked down. And in order to... Uh, have uh, you know mass slaughter recon- uh, uh, re- re- recommence at, at that facility? They had to quickly upgrade it and institute new procedures. They were only able to handle a small number. Instead, the last deportation went to Auschwitz. So only the last deportation from the Ludge Ghetto went to Auschwitz. Every other deportation was to Chelmno, but the last one was the big one. It was in July and August of 44, and it was 65,000 people, almost the entire remaining population of the ghetto. Uh, What happens to this population of 65,000? So at Auschwitz at that time, there wasn't much of a possibility of survival. Yes, some people were not immediately sent to the gas chambers, but even those who were sent to work temporarily uh, didn't have much of a chance of survival. Uh, the question now is, what happened to Rumkowski? He was on the last train deported from the Ludge Ghetto to go to Auschwitz. And he got there on August 28, 1944. What happened to Rumkowski? So there's a machlokus. One version of the story says that the Sonderkommando Jews at Auschwitz uh, Tore him, to, tore him to pieces. They bludgeoned him to death outside of the crematorium shortly after he arrived on the scene. That they knew of, of his uh, wicked status, that he was a bad guy, and that he had done horrible things to fellow Jews, so they bludgeoned him to death. Another version of the story, as appeared in, in the memoir, is that there was a community of Jewish criminals who had been from Lodz, who were sent in 1940 off to Auschwitz and survived in Auschwitz for a long time. There are, there are some people, my wife's grandfather, who actually survived at Auschwitz for four years or more. Uh, it's, I don't know how it happened, but some people did. And they survived up till the, the middle of '44, and they saw that the last remnants of the Ludge community was being sent off to... Um, to, to Auschwitz for, for, for her death and they saw that Rumkowski was there so what did they do? they were devious they knew that the Jewish police from the ghetto were able-bodied young men who were being sent on the line to live not to go to the gas chamber but, they, but the newly arrived people didn't know what was what so they were, they were fooled into going on the wrong line and they were carrying Rumkowski on a, on a stretcher because he was an older man, he was injured at that point. And Rumkowski didn't know where he was. And he said, where am I? 
and they told him Auschwitz, and he went like this, oh no, and he realized that he was done for. He really didn't know until that point. And they, they directed the, the ghetto police to, to, to the gas chamber, and they all died. So that's the other version of how Rumkowski died. Unclear which one is right, whether it's the Zunderkommando or that he died in the gas chamber. Okay, now, um, what happened to the remaining Jews of the ghetto? So it is claimed that 877 Jews survived. That they give an exact number, 877. I'm not sure how they know that exact number, but so be it. Who were these people? So 700 people were left behind to clean up and to try to eliminate all traces of uh, uh, wartime criminality, of crimes against humanity. Because Hans Bebo was concerned that he's going to get arrested and probably sentenced to death for, for his, uh, his actions. So let's try to eliminate all evidence. So that takes into account about 700 people. Another 200 were hiding, whether in the ghetto or, or just around the ghetto, uh, courtesy of friendly Christian neighbors. And these were, the, these were the people who were able to, in the post-war years, through memoir and oral testimony, tell the world what, what went on in the large ghetto. Um, it is claimed that about 10 to 15,000 people from among the 230,000 pre-war Jews of Lodz survived the war. But most of that 10 to 15,000 were people who fled early and never lived under Nazi rule, or only lived under Nazi rule for a few days and, and ran off to the Soviet-controlled Poland and further east, or somehow were able to escape in other directions or survive the, uh, the, the various concentration camps. Okay, so what was the, um, the legacy of Rumkowski? So Philip Friedman who was one of the early writers about the Holocaust, he compared Rumkowski to Moshe Merens, who was the Judenrat leader of the Sosnowitz ghetto, and uh, to Jacob Genz, who was the leader of the Vilno ghetto police. Um, that these were people who were like false messiahs. Uh, he writes that the, they were pseudo-saviors, were, were consciously or unconsciously influenced by the great messianic craze of the fascists, and aspired to be saviors of their people in ways that were devoid of Jewish spirit. They were ruthless men who ruled like their Nazi masters by coercion. They believed that they could manage to save at least a portion of their people by autocratic deeds in the spirit of the German Fuhrer. So that was Friedman's assessment in the late 50s, and then again in 1980. A very damning assessment of Rumkowski, comparing him to other bad apples who ran various other ghettos or, or Jewish ghetto police, who were, who were brutal, and did not behave in a so-called Jewish spirit. Others were taken more kindly to Rumkowski. For example, Isaiah Trunk, in his book on the Judenrat in 1972, changed the discourse and said that Rumkowski was not a traitor. He did his best under tough circumstances, and you could disagree with what he did, but he wasn't a traitor. Uh, various opinions have been put forth, in the last several decades, reassessing the character of Rumkowski. But I think that uh, Zalman Shazar, the third president of the State of Israel, uh, had a nice pithy statement about Rumkowski. He said, I am not amazed by the tyrant who chaired the Lord Judenrat, who displayed all sorts of affectations of tyranny and who delighted to be in power. He gave the impression of a degenerate who drank up his power as a drunkard drinks his wine. Uh, basically, the assessment is... The man liked power, he abused his power, he loved it, 
and it didn't bother him so much that he had to engage in morally distasteful behaviors and lead to the death of thousands and thousands of people. He just enjoyed the authority. Yeah. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. So, so the, the an argument in in favor of Rumkowski is that unlike, for example, Mordechai Levitz, who is regarded as a Zionist hero, but who because of him, arguably, several uh, thousand people died a year earlier than they otherwise might have. Rumkowski, for all the, the riches that he exhibited, led people to live a year longer than they otherwise might have, in that the Ludge Ghetto was not uh, liquidated in its entirety until August of 44, a good 12, 13, 14 months after the other ghettos were liquidated. So the man is at Tzadik Yisod Olam because people lived another year. So it all depends upon what you value. A day on this earth, a month on this earth, a year on this earth, or the possibility of fighting back, the glory of being a hero. For some people, the glory of being a hero is worth more than another year in a, in a, in a concentration camp if you're going to die no matter what. It's impossible for us to calculate these sorts of things. Everybody has a different opinion on the subject, especially if the person lived through it. They might say, well, every, minute, every, every, another, every day you lived was precious. Or, if you had a family that they all died, you might say that heroism was more important because at least they went down, down fighting with honor. Different approaches, yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. So so it's an interesting point. What what relationship did the, the course of the war have on the thinking of people living in the ghetto? So huh? So they had radios. They had radios, and for the most part, they were only getting German stations. But, as the various Western and Eastern fronts came closer and closer to uh, the centers of, of, of Jewish concentration in southwestern Poland, they could get broadcasts in other languages by the Allies. In the middle of 1944, between the last deportation to Chelmno and the only deportation to Auschwitz, where were the Soviet forces? Only about 60 miles away from Lodz. But they, although they had made tremendous advances in the early part of 1944, they were bogged down, they stalled, and couldn't get any further for the next few months. And so the liberation of all the major uh, camps occurred in January of 1945, Basically, between January 8th and January 27th, 1945, you have the liberation of all the, 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 the big factories of death. Well, that's six months too late to save the last uh, remnant of the Lodge Ghetto. But they, they were under the impression that maybe, just maybe, liberation could happen soon. Therefore... If we hold out a little while longer, maybe we'll actually live. That's that that that's the the thinking. Um, yeah. You said before that there are two opinions about the way that they ended his life. Right. The one that he was carried on a, a stretcher. Yeah. I mean, we know that they just whoever 
Right. Right. So, so there, there's reason to doubt that account. There, the, the, I, I, as, as I read it, as I read it, I'm, I was doubting it. Uh, plus, the fact that I had been led to believe since I began studying the Holocaust history 15 years ago that he was killed by the Zunderkommando. That's that's what you know. The, the legend, the you, the, the conventional legend about him is that he was killed by Jews outside the crematorium, not that he was. You know, deviously sent into the de- into the gas chamber, so I, I would go with the first option rather than the latter. Yeah. Does it change your opinion of him that he ended up going to Auschwitz as opposed to trying to save himself? And well, I mean, the, he was friendly with this guy Bebo, that maybe they could have saved him. I I don't know of uh, examples where a Jewish figure, communal figure, even a collaborator was allowed to survive all the way up to liberation because they were a high-level collaborator. I think they were all, or almost all, eventually either shot or sent off in a deportation to wherever their constituency was going. I mean... So, Hungary is in a class by itself. That's a separate category. We're going to talk about Kasten next week. He's going to be the topic for next week. Because there you have negotiations with outside actors, uh, you know, with neutral countries. It's a totally separate topic. Uh, but in Poland itself, in Poland-Lithuania, I don't think you have anyone who, who survives as a VIP. Right, because it would testify against him, exactly. Uh, the, the last thing uh, the commandants want is someone to, to bear witness to all the, the atrocities in precise detail. Okay. All right, we'll stop here. So next week we'll discuss Rudolf Kastner. Yes. So they found the uh, Golden Star, they found Lil.